there is something true about this gospel that we confess and our differences ought to be seen in light of uh, the gospel the gospel is is clearly from beginning to end about grace and mercy and uh, therefore dealing with our differences graciously and mercifully is a reflection of the god who made us Okay, folks, that opening round was from Professor, Pastor, Apologist Rick Lentz, who is talking to us about uncommon unity. What does it mean to have unity and diversity? Rick is also ministering in New York City with Redeemer City to City, part of Tim Keller's group. We're so sad to have had Tim Keller pass this past week as we're getting ready to let this podcast loose. A good friend of Rick's. Rick's very involved in all these ministries. He's got some great thoughts for us talking today about how do we hear people? How do we work with people that are different from us to help them understand who we are and to love them as disciples following Christ so they can know Christ? Let's listen as Raymond and I get a chance to wrestle this with a great mind, Professor, we Pastor, Apologist, and author Rick We create idols hoping they'll deliver uh, the goods we need or want, safety and significance, and they refashion us rather in their image. So we begin to look like uh, the idols that we apparently have made. Uh, the golden calf episode in Exodus 32 is the prime example. So the Israelites become like that golden calf. They don't have ears to hear, eyes to see, imagery used mm -hmm. across the rest of scriptures, which just connotes this notion uh, that uh, the idols that we hope in end up refashioning our hopes, our dreams, our purposes, our safety uh, 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 valves, uh, and the like. So that's not surprising uh, that if we suppose our 401k is going to save us, we'll start um, thinking all of life is, my life is oriented around those retirement savings. I mean, the list could go on and on. So the idols that we sh uh, fashion reshape us. Uh, that's the, the imagery I think we have uh, across the scriptures as well. So, so Rick, one, one, one final thing on all of that. One of the things I've reflected on, on this whole discipleship stuff and the modern challenge we face of self-identity is how that really is the original sin that it really is not the breaking of a law so that a judge has to hold us guilty, but it is abandoning God to make our own identity. In raising children or discipling folks in the church, to be self-critical of our own idols is a, goes a long way to communicate a, a kind of humility which is, is attractive, actually. Uh, said, if you, you're honest about your own idols, that's a great segue into uncommon unity, because in uncommon unity, you make the point that both in marriage and in our relationship to God and within the Trinity, that the unity that we have in Christ being one body is really we're different members. How do we create unity in such a tribal partisan environment? Uh, there, there it is. What tribalism is, is the notion that our differences are so great, they can never be uh, interestingly interactive with each other. That which we have in common with the most heinous of sinners is more 
than what we have in common with God. And so uh, that sense in which we belong to a broken humanity ought to give us a kind of humility to listen, as you say, uh, and honestly uh, listen, uh, both to uh, the brokenness that surrounds us, but also to our own brokenness, to be able to listen uh, critically of ourselves and also allow others to um, listen in on that conversation as we try to listen in on the conversation with them. So I have two questions for you then. In your book, Uncommon Unity, you seem to reach for the concept of wisdom as the Mm. bridge. And I would be fascinated for you to unpack that for us because I'm sitting here thinking, okay, we've got person A who's decided that their particular views of sensualism are the at least penultimate, if not ultimate definition of my identity, right? But I'm in the pew next to you. And then we've got this other person over here who said, no, theological intellectualism is absolutely the root and cause of all of our ability to worship and serve God. There's there's my identity. There's my calling. This is who I am. Okay, counselor, Professor Lentz, how do I get these two together in unity with this? How does this idea of wisdom bridge that for us? It, there's no how-to manual here. Uh, Dennis, I, I think I, the way you the way you ask the question, it, it leads to the answer. Actually, it's not easy. Uh, and what wisdom is, it, if it's anything, it's not mechanical. Uh, there's not a uh, uh, a list of six things you do to be wise or something of that sort. There is uh, uh, it, it's a different conceptual category than knowledge or information. And we have mostly educated in our day towards information and knowledge, not towards uh, wisdom. If you think about a person in your own experience who's really wise, they're often not the smartest person you know. In fact, the really smart people you know are often not very wise at all. Uh, They've often gone through some significant suffering in their lives. Suffering brings about a different kind of take Good to great, uh, the, the, uh, Jim Collins, a book way back yonder. What he said, interestingly, about the um, transformative leaders is they knew how to listen, and there was an evident humility in their character. And it's kind of interesting that he picked that out, and I would say that about pastors. I'd say that about you know uh, people who articulate a wisdom there's a kind of courage of conviction alongside of a genuine humility. So that's the, for sure, the challenge of our time, a challenge of a celebrity culture that worships overconfidence, bordering on a kind of arrogance. And that is, that kind of leadership doesn't last long. I'm trying to reduce this to um, a, sort of a pragmatic thought. Mm. And I realize I have two PhDs in front of me, which makes this very, very difficult. So you people who are watching, pray for me. But let, let me let me make a lunge on this. I think, Rick, I heard you talk about reconciliation in the pews in terms of unity. If I could, if I could mm-hmm. scope it down to that particular example, is the characteristics of loving the other Imago Dei enough to listen to the other Imago Dei enough to understand the other Imago Dei enough 
with the resurrection sitting at the center of it. I think I heard those kind of pieces as the wisdom that you're trying to articulate. Is that getting close enough for a... Well, I think very, very much so, Dennis. And uh, uh, thanks for making it more concrete. Uh, <laughs> I know Raymond and I like to be more abstract than concrete. We are, you know, overly cautious about pragmatism, uh, but there is something concrete and practical about life. Uh, and I think that the ability to listen across our differences, all the while keeping Jesus at the center of the conversation is the trick, uh, or uh, I want to be careful of that word, but I, I think you're exactly right, so that we don't lose uh, the, the conviction uh, that there is something true about this gospel that we confess, and our differences ought to be seen in light of uh, the gospel. The gospel is is clearly from beginning to end about grace and mercy. And uh, therefore dealing with our differences graciously and mercifully is a reflection of the God who made us uh, and the God who redeems us. So concretely speaking, the ability to speak to both um, folks in the pew who themselves are very different, bring different kind of convictions, uh, is uh, is problematic uh, in a time that doesn't value uh, that, uh, but sees uh, really our differences turned into disagreements as a good business model because they sell newspapers, they sell television ads, you know, the like, and we need to move beyond uh, that reality. Folks, we're live at halftime with professor and pastor and author Rick Lentz, who's also working in ministry with Redeemer City to City, part of Tim Keller's organization. Sadly, Tim Keller passed this past week, but leaves a great legacy that Rick's involved with in New York City, as well as his ministry in Boston. We want to talk more when we come back about unity and diversity, and how does that connect with Redeemer City to City? How does it connect to you and I listening and understanding people? And how does idolatry fit into our Christian community? Stick with us. We'll be right back. How is it that we have just strayed so far in in our discipleship training from getting to the heart of teaching people how to love one another, listen to one another, allow each other to have Christian liberty so that there's lots of things that we're not going to agree on, but we sincerely believe you're trying to do what you think is right in Christ. And we have really great discussions about what's the best way to move forward. To one, uh, love might be very tough. Uh, To another very tender-hearted individual, it might be very soft. Uh, And uh, without supposing, I know how to love everyone, because I, I don't. Uh, only God uh, knows knows that. So the, the concept of love itself is thick and rich and deep and wide, uh, and uh, we ought to uh, encounter that the fullness of it in a community, uh, a community of diverse gifts, a diverse temperaments, of diverse uh, intuitions about how you how you love, how you bump into it. Draw back to the question of the four Gospels. I mean, it is interesting that we have four of them and not one of them. That is, we get a very rich picture of Jesus by virtue of having four. Uh, John goes so far as to say we could have a lot more, actually, uh, a lot more books, uh, endless number uh, to get 
get this Jesus um, uh, fully described. And I, I do think it's interesting how the different perspectives each of the Gospels brings makes a difference for how we see uh, Jesus. And I think that's uh, that's really important. I opened the book with this illustration of my experience in southern Zimbabwe in a very rural village uh, with a church service that began at 10 o'clock on a Saturday night, went all night long, 12 elders pre preaching 12 sermon, hour-long sermons, lots of dancing, lots of uh, singing, uh, children and women on the uh, left, uh, men on the right, very different than anything I've ever experienced. Uh, and in, uh, in, in a real sense, two things came home to me there, uh, that worship was part of the fabric of ordinary life. So you, it was okay to fall asleep during a sermon because there were 12 of them. You were going to get something out of them. <laughs> and it was just part of the warp and woof of ordinary life. I also uh, took away from there that these were genuine brothers and sisters in Christ. They looked entirely different than anything I had seen or would. I, I'm not going to a, a service that begins at 10 o'clock on a Saturday night. Uh, I asked them how... You can't do this every week, can you? And they said, no, sometimes we do it twice a week. Uh, it was just part and parcel of life. Now, I think the danger there was to see uh, the church as if it was everything in life. But uh, that aside, there were some lessons there for, for me that compartmentalized church uh, um, to a Sunday morning hour uh, with a, you know, a, a liturgy. Uh, but to expand this notion that our Christianity is lived out in ordinary life across the whole of the week. Uh, so uh, there, there, again, is unity and diversity at work. We often see our blind spots by talking with those who are different from us. Uh, that is, I think, part of our sanctification uh, uh, in, in a marriage, in a friendship, uh, and it, in any number of other contexts. Uh, do you know anybody who's really advocating for a broader, more embracing concept of Christian liberty? I'm not free simply to uh, head down the highway at 98 miles an hour because I'd, I'd like to. Uh, so uh, there are laws that uh, frame our liberties in some regards. Uh, but there is another sense in which, uh, as James speaks about it, uh, the law of liberty, the law of freedom. And we ought to be very careful of taking that away from someone. And in James, that means, um, you know, we tame our own tongue. We, we limit our own freedoms, our own choices for the good of others rather than ourselves. How do we move forward um, to create those loving communities? To me, the, the challenge of evangelism today is not having an apologetical argument. It's having a community at the church that people want to be a part of. I was preaching out of Acts 17, Paul's uh, encounter at Athens, uh, back to an earlier point that we've made. Paul actually understood the world uh, of Athens, uh, uh, the idols uh, there. He took the time. Uh, this, there's a lot more to that story, enters in. And what he's essentially doing, I take it, is what uh, Curtis, but a whole host of others uh, have been suggesting across 
uh, the last 50 years, uh, I, I think Oz, for example, uh, that understanding the assumptions, uh, the idols of the Athenians, Paul's argument is that the hopes and dreams are not sustainable with those idols. The hopes and the dreams uh, ought to be fulfilled, but can only be fulfilled in Christ. And the resurrection in particular there is, is his point. So I, I do think it, it takes an enormous amount of work to understand those fundamental assumptions of our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers, enough to understand what are their hopes, uh, their dreams, and why aren't they sustainable uh, uh, fulfilled on their terms? Uh, why do they point beyond themselves? I think this is the argument from common uh, grace or con the common good. Uh, and that I think we, we ought to engage more uh, in our time, uh, although discussions of the common good often look like they are oppressive. Yeah, that's the challenge, I think, of this strategy. And I'm very much in favor of this Augustinian strategy of entering into the stories of our culture and retelling them in the light of the gospel. But that project can be viewed as you imposing your story on me. And so we we have to listen to uh, the um, the criticism even of that strategy in our time. Rick, you are living in the uh, Boston area, and yet you travel to New York City a lot, and there's this thing called City to City. Would you talk to us a little bit about what in the world you're up to there? Yeah, I uh, appreciate the question. Uh, a couple of years ago, at the end of my time at Gordon-Conwell, conversations uh, emerged with uh, a longtime friend, Tim Keller, about the, some of the projects that were going on in New York City. Tim is known uh, for a, a remarkable uh, witness in this global, very secular city of New York, and then thinking about how churches thrive in places like that, uh, that have largely been abandoned by evangelicals uh, over the last uh, two generations or so. Uh, the project I'm most involved with at City to City is uh, what we call the City Ministry Project, training pastors uh, city to City historically has been mostly about training church planters, uh, but the uh, funnel needs to uh, start a little bit earlier. You need to train pastors if you're going to train church planters, uh, and how do you train them in context? Uh, so in some ways, it looks quite um, traditional in terms of the kinds of issues that we train pastors with in the city. Uh, but in many ways, we're asking at every turn, uh, how, how does their particular context, their particular neighborhood inform what they're doing and how they're doing it? Uh, it tends to be a, a model of theological education, much more dialogical in, in its orientation than uh, classic brick and mortar seminaries have historically been. It's also much more local. Uh, you have to live in New York City. You have to be part of a church that sponsors you in the city. Uh, and uh, New York, as you know, is not a small city. Uh, it is incredibly diverse, incredibly large, uh, and all sorts of cross currents going on, which has been a great joy. 
having been in Boston for a very long time, I, I realized how much New York has in common with Boston uh, in the Northeast, uh, very secular, uh, highly um, oriented towards uh, uh, the movers and the shakers, the elite cultures, but also then how many are left behind in that conversation as well. And yet, as much as Boston and New York have in common, how different they are uh, in so many ways. And so it's been a, a delight and a joy uh, working uh, uh, both in New York City and remotely just because of the nature of uh, life these days uh, while still being here in Boston. So uh, it's been a joy to be part of this very interesting organization uh, and uh, the founders of it, Tim and some others, always remind those uh, of us who work that it's a movement, not an organization. Rick, if a pastor in New York City happens to be watching this podcast and goes, I want to know more about this, where would they look to pick up information that you're talking about? Yeah, on the City to City website, RedeemerCityToCity.com, uh, and uh, lots of um, menus down uh, that you can uh, look for the city ministry project. What's what's one other interesting piece about it is that it was oriented towards those who had no theological education, no seminary training. Uh, but interestingly, we have had lots of pastors come into the program, uh, uh, both as a refresher, but also to realize that they're facing questions that the seminary didn't train them 20 years ago or 30 years ago for because the world is so different and their world is so different. So uh, we we welcome uh, those with a seminary degree, those that have no seminary training, uh, elders in a church, lay leaders, uh, and folks that are thinking about vocational uh, ministry uh, as well. Professor Rick Lentz, we are just honored and delighted that you would join us today on The Disciple Dilemma. Thanks for having me and uh, look forward to some more conversations in the future. Thank you for listening to The Disciple Dilemma today with Professor Rick Lentz. We could sure use your help following us on YouTube, Instagram, Rumbly, LinkedIn, Facebook, all the social media sites. Let us know that you're out there by liking and following what we're doing. We would really appreciate that. won't cost you anything. helps us get the word out. Discipleship's been hacked, and we've got to talk about what Jesus expects of us with his model of discipleship. That's what these conversations are about. Thank you for listening. Thank you.